You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and I hope you have your biggest thinking caps handy because on today's episode, we'll be taking a look at global innovation. From intellectual property rights and geopolitics to the structure of research institutions, today's guest has literally written a book on global innovation practice. Now an adjunct professor at the UTS Business School, Professor Bruce McKern has a career that spans some of the world's most prestigious research institutions, from a PhD at Harvard to visiting fellowships at Stanford and Oxford universities. Bruce has become a leading thinker in business management and innovation strategy. He has founded or led business schools at Macquarie, Melbourne, Stanford, Shanghai, and Sydney universities, to name just a few. Over this extensive and globe-trotting career, Bruce has developed an incredible perspective on the practice of innovation, and his most recent work examines how China has been revolutionizing its scientific and innovation practices to match the country's dramatic economic transformation. Professor Bruce McKern, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you, Leo. So your current title is that of adjunct professor at the University of Technology in Sydney, but your career spans a much greater depth than that. How do you describe your expertise? Uh, My expertise, I would say, is uh, essentially in the field of strategy, international business, and innovation. Uh, And these reflect the interests that I've had for many years although the innovation one is is more recent. The other thing I would also say, which is not reflected in my current role at UTS, is that I've been, uh, for a good part of my career, an institution builder. Yes, you certainly have, and this interview will definitely get onto some of the institutions you've built. But can I take you back to your childhood? You grew up in rural Queensland in a town called Babinda. What are your memories of, of that place and your childhood? Uh, certainly um, a very small town, and uh, my memories of that time are very pleasant. Growing up in a very small town where one knew, you know, everybody, kids at school, and so on. My father was the local dentist, and my mother was a, a school teacher, uh, and they had met by sheer circumstance when my father was travelling around Queensland as a dentist, a travelling dentist for the Department of Education. And he had a, a, a small surgery set up in a railway carriage. Anyway, he fetched up in uh, Babinda and decided to start a practice there. And that's how I met my mother. We lived there till I was about seven and then with uh, opportunities for education somewhat limited. And my father, having come from Sydney, he decided to move a start to Sydney. So uh, most of my subsequent time in education was at Sydney, uh, at high school in, in North Sydney uh, and uh, Sydney University. Yeah, I did want to get into your Sydney University degree because although you are now an expert in international business, you actually started off studying chemical engineering. What got you into that field and where did you think your career might take you at that time? It's a very good question and the answer is that uh, as in many cases, it was somewhat accidental. Uh, I finished high school with a good record in physics and French, which is kind of a strange combination it was difficult to know what to do. 
I was awarded a scholarship by the Alliance Francaise for my work in French, and that took me to New Caledonia, where I did the French baccalauréat for a year, and then returned to Sydney and still didn't quite know what to do. So one option was a career in French to become a French teacher or professor, but I, I was more inclined towards practical pursuits, and that took me to engineering. And chemical engineering was curious in a way. I can't really explain it, except that somehow the idea of working on problems that have to do with chemistry was appealing, even though chemistry was not my best subject at high school. And I enjoyed the time in chemical engineering. In those days, it was a very small department at the University of Sydney. When I graduated, we only had seven students in our final year. So we had fairly personalized tuition, which was very good. And did you do much work in that profession? Yes, I did. Uh, after I graduated, I wanted to work in design, engineering design, and there were really very few opportunities to do that in Australia at the time. So I went off to Canada and uh, fetched up there. Uh, it was much easier to get jobs in Canada than in the United States. The visa issues were much easier. And there was a bigger chemical industry. So I worked for a period of time, first of all, with DuPont, uh, as a process engineer, essentially running uh, parts of a plant, but I still wasn't able to do design work. So I then moved then to Canadian General Electric uh, to their civilian atomic power department because they were building Canada's first nuclear power reactor. It was a, a small demonstration reactor, 70 megawatts, but it became the basis for all of Canada's nuclear power industry. And it was a very, very interesting time to be. One felt one was on the frontier of a new development. And although I wasn't involved in the reactor design, I was involved with a group of other engineers working on the heat transfer, uh, fluid flow side of the business. And uh, it was a very, very interesting time. I had one particular problem which uh, I couldn't solve, but I discovered that we had a physicist uh, on the staff who had a computer or some kind of a computer. That was my first introduction to the power of computers uh, in very early days, of course. But after uh, Canadian General Electric, when that project was finished, I moved to Union Carbide in Montreal, uh, where they were expanding their uh, high density, sorry, the low density polyethylene plant. And that was a very interesting project as well, because we were building essentially uh, uh, almost a, a completely new plant to produce polyethylene from local ethylene gas. Fascinating positions. And when uh, that work was done, um, I sought to return to Australia. And uh, about that time, ICI was looking for people. So I was uh, given a job at ICI's um, engineering department in Melbourne and worked on a number of projects with them. Uh, following all of that, I moved to Sydney uh, with Union Carbide again, the Australian branch and became assistant works manager of one of their factories in Sydney, uh, which was a great opportunity to do again, engineering work on expansion of the plant and introduction of uh, new equipment to reduce costs and so forth. So um, a good opportunity to do some of the things I'd been trained to do as an engineer. Yeah, so I mean, hearing all of that, several countries, multiple companies, people might be forgiven for thinking that is a career already, but it it certainly is not. Um, your, your career took a pretty substantial turn because you received a PhD scholarship to study at the Harvard Business School, studying how multinational corporations exploit natural resources around the world. 
can you tell us how that project came about and, and what being part of the Harvard ecosystem did to shape your later career? Well, the, the answer to the second part is that, of course, it had an enormous impact, and I'll come back to that. Uh, while, I, while I was working as an engineer, I became interested in academic work and uh, took a position at the chemical engineering department at the University of Sydney as a senior lecturer. And there, because of my industry background, I was asked to teach project management and, and also industrial chemistry, which is, in, in those days, was really helping students to understand how uh, chemical products got manufactured. So those all fitted with my industry experience, and I quite enjoyed that. But while I was there, I thought, since my focus is very much on the management side of engineering, I should really learn more about management uh, in a professional way. And so I enrolled in the MBA at the University of New South Wales, which at that stage I think was the only MBA program in Sydney, and I uh, found that very interesting. And as a result of my first year work there, uh, I was awarded the first John Story Memorial Travelling Fellowship from the Australian Institute of Management. And that enabled me to travel with my family to Boston, where I enrolled in the, at the Harvard Business School in the doctoral program. And that enabled me to focus on international business, which was at that time a, an emerging discipline, I would say, but at Harvard, it was probably the most advanced in the world at the time because it had Professor Raymond Vernon as the leader of that group. He was an outstanding scholar. He had been the protagonist of a, uh, a theory called the product life cycle theory uh, in international trade, made a contribution to understanding some of the puzzling issues about comparative advantage. And other people, uh, including my thesis supervisor, uh, Professor Eli Shapiro, who was uh, one of the fine minds in the field of finance. So all of that uh, enabled me to focus on uh, see seeking a PhD topic. And uh, at the time, I felt that I had some advantage because of knowing a little bit about industry. Um, I knew a little bit about Australia, and I thought perhaps studying the minerals industry would be a, a good focus. There were some very interesting questions, both uh, geopolitical questions, also economic structure questions. And I chose as my topic then uh, foreign investment in the global minerals industry with a specific emphasis on the negotiating process between foreign investors and governments in Australia. That produced my thesis and it encouraged me to do quite a bit of work in that area for some years. I think you're about to get to it. I wanted to follow on with the, the kind of culture of Harvard and the networks that it tapped you into. Yes, uh, thank you. I was just going to mention that. It's an, it's a, it was an extraordinary place at that time, and I think, of course, it still is. And that's one of the things that I, really struck me about the American university system. Once you got accepted into, the, into a school, the assumption was that you were going to succeed. They did everything they could to make it easy for you or helpful to you to, to get along and do what you wanted to do. Harvard provided scholarships, they provided loans. I, uh, doors were open so easily when I wanted to do things. For example, my thesis supervisor, Eli Shapiro, said, um, you should go and have a talk to David Rockefeller. So he set that up and I flew down to New York and had a meeting with him and he provided a little bit of funding for one of my projects. <laughs> 
And uh, there were many other examples. Uh, we had to write case studies as part of our degree there. And uh, I was very interested in a particular company called Bendix, which was a multi-product company, but focused on electronics and related products. And I mentioned this to uh, one of my professors. He said, oh, well, you, you should go and uh, meet Michael Blumenthal. I went to meet Michael Blumenthal because I wanted to write a case study about their investment in Taiwan, being one of the early American companies to move their manufacturing to the Far East. Michael was a remarkable person, having escaped from Nazi Germany, interned in Shanghai for several years with his family, finally making his way to the United States and becoming a very successful businessman. Shortly after I met him, he became Secretary of the Treasury under President Carter. So a very, very distinguished and interesting record. So these, these are the sort of people for whom the doors were open simply because you happen to be at that institution. People like that who uh, automatically assumed that you'd be somebody that they could spend time with. So the culture was very good. It was a culture which focused on the quality of what you did, but also very much on helping you to make connections with the business community. The Harvard Business School, I think, was preeminent in that respect. Uh, it had so many graduates in so many important posts around the world. Uh, so it helped me to understand the importance in a business school of fostering that connection, uh, being not only good academically, as good as one could be, but not doing so at the expense of addressing practical real-world problems. So after completing his PhD at Harvard, the freshly minted Dr. Bruce McKern had a newfound respect for the power and value of networks. He soon developed some of his own as he filled a position lecturing finance at Stanford University in California, an institution he was to return to many times over his career. But Bruce was destined to return home to Australia, and in 1972 he became an Associate Professor of Management at Macquarie University in Sydney. It was a post he would occupy for 17 years as he helped form a new graduate school of management, became its dean, and ultimately grew the institution from obscurity to a position of national prominence. I asked Bruce about this period and how his time at Stanford and Harvard affected the way he shaped Macquarie's new school of management. So after the year at Stanford, I then went to Australia and I was appointed as an associate professor at, the, at Macquarie University. And at that stage, Macquarie had just started programs in business administration. I was the second member to join the group. And over time, we were able to add staff. Um, I eventually became the director of the school and worked for many years uh, to enable the school to operate independently from the rest of the economics, accounting and other faculty. And that was a long process. We realized that it was necessary to involve the business world, and that fitted quite well with our strategy because at that time we believed that a business school had to have its roots well into the business community as well as the academic field. And so it was a process of gradually strengthening our relationship with both parties. Uh, shortly after I arrived at Macquarie, the federal government announced an inquiry into management education 
and it was led by a professor from Carnegie Mellon, Richard Syatt, who I subsequently succeeded at a, a position at uh, Carnegie Mellon. But the Syatt committee recommended that Australia set up one uh, government-supported business school, which was went, went to the University of New South Wales, and that created a school called the Australian Graduate School of Management. So at Macquarie, we were at a disadvantage. We didn't have special government funding, but we decided that we would differentiate ourselves by uh, the relationship with the business community. And over time, that proved to be very successful. And by the time I left Macquarie, we had raised funds to build our building. We built a series of buildings which subsequently grew into a large campus. And we were also the number one business school in Australia based on the overseas rankings. I wanted to pick up on a thread that you said there. You said one of your kind of key early goals for the School of Management was to develop some independence from the rest of the university bureaucracy. How did you accomplish that? And how important was it for the ultimate success of the School of Management? Oh, I, I think it was absolutely critical there because at Macquarie at, at that time, there was quite a large school of economic and financial studies which grouped together a whole range of disciplines. And the problem was that it was very focused on undergraduate teaching and it was not very flexible and also not very close to the business world. And Harry Edwards, I thought, had a, a lot of foresight in seeing the need to develop business administration. But we found it difficult to be as flexible and operate as, as well as we like. We, we had the model of places like Harvard. Um, one of my colleagues who joined shortly after I came was another Harvard Business School graduate. And we had others with international experience. So to develop the kind of programs, attention to students and links with the business community, we needed a smaller entity and we needed much more independence. So that was a very long process to get that independence. It was a step-by-step process where we used the connections with the business community to help to explain to the university why uh, this was needed. And it eventually uh, succeeded. It was helped initially by the then Vice-Chancellor, Alec Mitchell, uh, by others in the university who were sympathetic, but there was quite a lot of opposition as well. And the unfortunate and sad thing, Leo, is that in more recent years, a different administration at Macquarie has succumbed to pressures from other parts of the university to uh, re- eliminate the independence of the Graduate School of Management and fold it back into the larger school. I think that was a, a retrograde step, a big mistake, because Macquarie has in recent years been one of the only two business schools in Australia with that degree of independence. And Macquarie had this advantage of very strong, substantial differentiation, which it has now chosen to uh, lose. Yeah, it seems to be such a common thread throughout the university sector that there's a, there is this temptation from management to exert control and, I guess, standardise programs across the board. Yes, I'm afraid that's true. And the, the astonishing thing is that Australian universities have become more and more bureaucratic over time, whereas in the United States, um, in my experience of, of two private universities, they still operate with the idea that initiative is best exercised in a decentralized fashion. And so, for example, Stanford Business School uh, is um, very independent of the university in many respects, uh, financially particularly. 
it pays less than 10% of its total revenue to the central administration, uh, but it's responsible, of course, for raising funds from getting students, and it's also responsible to the university for the quality of its programs. So there's no sense in which the decentralization means loss of quality. That's absolutely critical. And senior appointments, for example, are all done by the individual units, such as the business school, but they are subject to review by the central uh, provost of the university. So there's a, they've uh, reached a very good balance, I think, between initiative and responsibility. Well, speaking of Stanford, your career took you back there several times in the 90s and through the 2000s. And obviously, that corresponds with a time when there was this huge boom of vibrant activity in Silicon Valley, which is just down the road from Stanford. Groups like you know Google were getting their start. Sergey Brin and Larry Page were actually in Stanford dorm rooms creating the first iterations of that company that went on to obviously take over the world. So I guess I just wondered, what was the culture like on campus at this time when such spectacular stories were emerging from the student body and companies just down the road? Well, it's a uh, remarkable environment. Uh, one almost feels that it's in the, in the air. Uh, and uh, of course, it's, uh, when I first started there, it, it, was, it was already a hotbed of innovation, but it's uh, increased enormously since then. In the early t- period of my work at Stanford, there wasn't a great deal of coursework in the field of innovation and startups, but that changed pretty rapidly. And today, uh, it's innovation, uh, entrepreneurship, are really core components of the curriculum. And they are very popular with students. And what's interesting, too, is that the business school is very comfortable with having business people teaching. For example, Andy Grove, one of the founders of Intel, was a lecturer in the Graduate School of Business for many years. And his course was one of the most popular ones because he was a clever, intelligent man who was able to give structure to his course in a, in a brilliant way. But he also had the connections with the industry that he could draw on and uh, provide very good context for everything he was teaching. So he's just one example of that approach. Now, on top of that, of course, every day there are people coming into the school to give talks, uh, to meet with students who are coming from Silicon Valley. So whereas Harvard for many years was very strongly wedded to the case study approach, Stanford was more open to alternative approaches. It didn't go in the full direction of, say, for Chicago, for example, of being much more theoretical and much more academic, but it balanced the two. And so it was able, I think, to get the best of both worlds. Faculty members had easy access or still have easy access to Silicon Valley for case studies. And so... Uh, that's something that uh, is, is a great advantage because your teaching with the students is, of course, greatly informed by the local content and also by the fact that you can invite uh, the CEO of the company into your classroom to talk about uh, what, the, what the students are, uh, are concluding. So uh, great, great connections with Silicon Valley. On top of that, many, many informal ways of getting to understand what's going on. Uh, you walk down the main street of Palo Alto and you'll see people from companies all over Silicon Valley having coffee, having drinks, very easy to meet informally. And there is a whole ecosystem there which has developed over time. And 
people say, oh, well, we should be able to replicate that. But it's difficult to replicate a complete ecosystem. You can put in place some of the infrastructure. You can put in place some of the institutions. All of that's important. But there's an interlocking set of facilities, people and institutions that make it much easier to create an idea, to find funding for it, to get help, start a business and also to recruit people. And the informality of the connections between people means that there's a great deal of knowledge being exchanged. Uh, not necessarily confidential, of course, but uh, somebody will say, well, you know, we are using this, this accounting firm and they're terrific. Or we're using this legal firm. Or have you thought of doing this? And a lot of that informality helps to stimulate the sense of ferment and excitement that goes on there. So th this is a, a wonderful environment. I spent quite a bit of time in China, and there are areas of China which have been developed as uh, areas for R&D, technology development, and so on. Uh, and some of them are, are very, very large and, and pretty successful, but one doesn't find this very exciting, informal ecosystem that supports everything you have. Government can build research institutes, it can recruit people, and all of that is good and necessary. But unless you get that grassroots uh, informality and exchange of ideas, you miss something. And that's something that I think is quite unique to Silicon Valley. Do you think it's just a matter of time for those cultures to take root in other places, or is there something more unique about Silicon Valley? I think time is a big factor, Leo, without a doubt. Silicon Valley started before pretty well everybody else. The institutions are important. They need to be rooted by a very strong university or universities, which is certainly the case there. It's not just Stanford. It's Berkeley and the University of San Francisco and Santa Clara, etc., uh, all of those things take time to establish. You're quite right. Uh, whether that's going to be possible to happen over time is difficult to say uh, because it is to some extent dependent, I think, also on the attitude of government towards supporting innovation. I think one of the remarkable things about the United States system is that there's quite a lot of government money provided for startups for innovation, but it comes in a competitive context. The National Science Foundation, health organizations provide a lot of funding. The Department of Defense provides funding. And quite often they will set a very broad agenda, but the allocation of money is done in a very competitive way. So you don't get funded unless your idea is unique and interesting and possibly able to generate an interesting result. So I think that's one of the interesting and successful aspects of the U.S. system, and it works very well in Silicon Valley. Uh, the U.S. Uh, did something similar uh, in San Diego. Uh, San Diego in the, its early years, uh, in the 60s and 70s, was uh, a very strong base for defense work. And that helped a lot of companies to grow uh, and do very well there. But it also uh, became a location for several important research institutions, University of California in San Diego, uh, the uh, Scripps Institute, uh, various research institutes of that kind, which developed in the area. And 
when defense spending started to drop uh, in a later period of San Diego's development, there was a unified approach to solving the problem between business, local government, federal government, and universities. And San Diego reinvented itself by focusing much more on biotechnology. And it's become very successful in that area. When I was at the University of Sydney in the United States Study Center doing research on innovation there, we did some comparative analysis of Australian institutions uh, concerned with biotechnology and the US. And we chose to look at San Diego and compare San Diego with the major Australian centers. And at the time we did that work, which is about 10 years ago, it was very telling that San Diego, one city, was accounting for more innovation of development than all of the Australian cities, all of the Australian universities, all the Australian research institutions. It's a little bit of an exaggeration because in Australia, the independent medical research institutions, such as Walter and Eliza Hall, Garvin, they had very strong research and they, they stood up very well against San Diego. But in terms of the country as a whole, we hadn't gone as far as uh, that one city in the United States. I'm talking 10 years ago, things change, and it's very good to see so much happening here. But it will take time, I think, to, uh, to copy Silicon Valley. So you mentioned this briefly, but as well as the US, you've spent quite a lot of time studying China and the Chinese innovation ecosystems. I wonder if we could talk a bit about Chinese innovation and the narrative that we hear in the West, which often portrays China as an IP thief or a copycat, seems like it might be a bit behind what the reality on the ground is. Yes, uh, happy to talk about that. China is a very interesting case and, of course, uh, one that's very much in our minds at the moment. I, I went to China first uh, back in the 1980s, and that was just at the beginning of the uh, relaxations uh, and the opening up instigated by Deng Xiaoping. And at that time, uh, China was still uh, very much a communist centralized country. I gave lectures uh, with a colleague. We went around the country, Beijing, Shanghai, Xi'an. And in every place we went, we had a big audience. And most of the people present were wearing the blue uniforms, the, the common uniform of the time. The country was very undeveloped. Uh, it was poor. There were very few private cars in the streets. There were lots of buses, lots of bicycles. But what really struck me at the time was the curiosity of the people who went to our talks. They, they wanted to know about everything. They weren't restricted to the topic in hand. They asked about all sorts of things, political system, etc., etc. And what struck me very much was the sense that there was an enormous intellectual energy there waiting for an opportunity to be released and to be exercised. And of course, that's what Deng Xiaoping did. He, he made that possible. And when that happened, uh, very quickly, people started to find ways to create small businesses. When I was there at that stage, when you walked down a street, there was nothing to buy on the street. There were no private shops. When I returned to China several times later, I could see the progress that was happening, which was astonishing. And when I went there uh, to work at, in Shanghai at the China Europe International Business School, it was a wonderful opportunity to try to put together an understanding of what has happened during that time and where it was heading. So a colleague and I, George Yip, I did a, a research study over three years, 
uh, visiting Chinese companies, pulling all the data together we could, doing a lot of mini case studies plus some larger ones and a lot of statistical work. And the result of that was that we were enormously impressed by the strides that China had made. And it's a combination of several factors. First of all, an enormous underlying need and thirst for products, for services and goods, which had been not satisfied in the previous time. Secondly, uh, government support in the form of investment in R&D, setting up R&D centers around the country, particularly on the coast, roughly about 0.5% of GDP being spent directly by the government in that way. Quite a small amount, but it was accompanied by increasing money spent by companies, started up sometimes in research institutes, and they started up all over the country in quite small ways, but they themselves were gradually getting money together and able to start to invest in new products and new development. Now, initially, a lot of that was copied. Absolutely right. The, the accusations of China being a copycat were absolutely fair and correct. But over time, those companies went beyond copying. For example, there was a company uh, which produced a simulated iPhone. This company was based in Guangzhou. It was started by a couple of guys, brothers, who uh, saw the absolutely astonishing demand and interest in iPhones by people, but most people couldn't afford them, of course. So they developed a small unit that looked like an, an iPhone. It was the shell of an iPhone in plastic, but looked very much like the iPhone itself. And you had to have a an iPod touch, and you, you so that cost you about $100. This was, still wasn't cheap. But you bought this, this unit, uh, and you put the iPod Touch inside it, and it behaved like an iPhone. And so that was copying the idea, of course, but those guys had to work out how to put a, a camera inside, they had to work out how to put a SIM card inside, they had to work out how to miniaturize all of this in a way that made it look like an iPhone. That's just one example. But there are many, many such cases, and so copying was prevalent and widespread, absolutely, but uh, very quickly, Chinese customers started to want better and better products. The initial products often were very shoddy. Some of them were quite deceitful and, and unfair. But over time, those products got known and people refused to buy them. They were called Shanghai products after the, the word for abandoned. So they were uh, not acceptable over, over, over time. And so uh, those companies were forced then to improve their products. And in the process of doing that, they became better able to understand the basics of innovation. Another important factor that was happening at the same time was that foreign companies, US companies, others, were setting up in China, uh, setting up assembly lines to produce products essentially based on low labor costs. And they were farming that work out to local companies. So the local companies who were setting up assembly lines to produce components and uh, finished products had to have the quality of their systems and their engineering and their process management up to world standard. And in the process of developing those standards, they were also developing their capabilities to operate at that level themselves. And so, in a sense, the Western companies taught Chinese companies how to become their competitors over time. So the combination of all of those factors 
has resulted now in China being at or very close to the equivalent of the West in, in most fields and ahead of the West in some others. China now spends approximately 2% of GDP on R&D and that percentage is slightly higher than the percentage of GDP spent by the European Union as a whole. It's not quite as high as that of the United States, which spends about 2.5% of GDP, but it has been growing rapidly every year and the intention is to make it go further. That's a measure of input, but if we look at measures of output, we see a very similar pattern. China is now the number one nation in the world in terms of publications in scientific and engineering journals. It published in 2018 20.7% of world publications and the US published 16.5%. The EU as a whole published 24% but it's clear that China is rapidly increasing there. And it's number one in a number of fields such as engineering, chemistry, uh, and it's number two in uh, communications, computer science and IT, and also in the field of material sciences. If we turn to another measure, which is patenting activity, here again, China is the number one in the world in terms of patents produced by its companies. So in all of these respects, China is now practically producing the results of innovation very successfully. China is able to spend money on fields which it regards as important without having to be too concerned about seeking approvals. It's therefore able to invest heavily in areas where it sees the need to increase its capabilities. And that's been possible because China has had the example of Western countries uh, to see where it really needs to go. But today it's moving beyond that and it's investing in fields which are emerging and new where Western countries may not yet be spending as much. An example of this is quantum computing. China has recently invested some $10 billion in a quantum computing center in the city of Hefei in Anhui province and it will probably end up being ahead of the rest of the world in this field. So this is going to happen in other places as well. These activities are supported by other major initiatives of China, including Made in China 2025, which is probably the most ambitious. This involves changing the technology intensity of China's manufacturing industry in a major way to make China less dependent on other countries for intermediate products and some finished goods, and also to provide higher incomes for its workers. It's a policy which was modelled on the German Industry 4.0 program and it depends for its implementation on a whole range of projects which have a technology base. A second important initiative also is the Belt and Road Initiative which is the great expansion of Chinese investment on, along the countries between Western China, Europe and Africa. This is a very ambitious project focused on building infrastructure in those countries and again it's a place in which Chinese innovation has an opportunity to extend itself. So all of these new initiatives are supporting the overall investment in innovation. All of this makes it very clear that China's technological ability 
is now a force to be reckoned with. So with a substantial body of published works on management, innovation and geopolitics behind him, Bruce is now back home in Australia and has most recently turned his attention to the local startup ecosystem. He's a member of Sydney Angels, an active investor and advisor for early stage technology companies in Australia. So I asked Bruce about the state of the Australian startup ecosystem and what advice he has for young founders looking to gain the support of angel investors. Well, uh, when I left Australia to, to go to work in the United States, we had very little in the way of venture capital industry, very little in the way of angels here. And that's changed enormously in the, in the last 20 years, particularly even in the last 10 years. Um, uh, an old friend of mine who uh, was a, an MBA student at Harvard when I was there um, came back to Australia and essentially became Australia's first uh, venture capitalist. And so we have seen much more of that in recent years. I think, though, that the, the angel uh, investment side of things has also exploded a lot. And what I'm impressed by with the group of angels I work with, Sydney Angels, is that there's a very careful and meticulous process to evaluate new ventures. And I'm also impressed by the volume of deals that come our way. Now, having said that, I think one criticism I would make of the entrepreneurs who are approaching us is that they vary a great deal in quality. We have a, a system for sorting that out pretty early on. But it's disappointing that there are not enough people, I think, yet, who are coming up with proposals for new ideas that will have a substantial impact. We have enormous numbers of people who have some improvement on a particular business idea. We have people who have a way of doing something on the internet, which is intended to make something more efficient or skim off a little bit of profit from something that's already happening. Uh, many of those deals haven't been really thought through very well, and they're not earth-shattering. Now, it's easy for me to say that because I haven't produced earth-shattering innovation, but if we look at that process, uh, it's improved an enormous amount in Australia in the last 10 to 15 years, and it's also been aided by groups such as CSRO with their on-prime program, which brings young entrepreneurs in, enables them to work in an environment which is supportive and gives them advice and encouragement. That is very good. We have many operations, accelerators and so on around the country, which are doing the same thing. And that's a very important change. And I think the other important change is that the universities are also doing much more of this than they used to. So all of that is very good. I just feel that we, we need to do more. And when we come to look at the process that people like Sydney Angels use, I would say that this is something that I think is, is, is extremely uh, good. People uh, are able to come to us with an idea. Uh, we don't have any criteria about what sort of field it should be in, but we have a process of looking quickly at um, proposals. We can weed out very quickly those that are, are not at all suitable. Uh, we then focus on those that look encouraging. You've seen those, of course, Leo. And uh, the process from then on is a, a very deliberate one. Uh, we do due diligence on the ideas. We work closely with the founders. We will suggest to the founders areas for improvement before we fund. 
uh, we find ways to put the funding together and we then try to help the founder once the company's got started. So I think that's an excellent process. It's very similar to what a venture capital firm would do. We don't have the same resources they have, but amongst the group of people, the hundred or so people that belong to City Angels, there's a lot of experience and ability, and um, that's something that is, is very valuable. Now, if I can talk about what um, uh, individuals might think about and people who are thinking about entrepreneurship, um, then I, I think the advice I would say there is, is stems to some extent from what I've just been saying. That is that if you are going to look for setting up a new company, which I think is an admirable uh, objective, try to make it something that's going to make a big difference. Uh, easy to say that, of course. But one of the ways to get to that point is to get involved in startups early. Don't wait too long. Try to get involved in a startup, perhaps not one that you run yourself, but work with a, a group that's doing a startup. You learn a great deal in that process of what's involved in starting a company, what do you have to focus on, and where you can get help from. And then if you can then look yourself for something to start up, try to be bold, try to take a, a, a view about something grand, because that's where the big difference is going to be made. And if Australia is going to become successful in all the things we've been talking about, we need lots of people with bold ideas who are going to think big and make a huge difference. And uh, the more you can do that, the better, and you'll get support for it. Well, Bruce, that's a perfect place for us to wrap up. It's been a fascinating discussion. The final question that we have for all of our guests is, do you have any book recommendations for the audience? Well, of course, I would certainly recommend that anybody interested in innovation in China uh, get a copy of um, Yip and McKern, China's Next Strategic Advantage, From Imitation to Innovation. But there are many other books uh, that have been published over the years. Uh, Clayton Christensen's uh, book about the problems of newcomers to industries. Clayton uh, Christensen had some remarkable ideas there. I think that's well worth reading. Uh, my colleague at Stanford, a former dean of the business school, uh, Michael Spence, uh, wrote a very interesting book called The uh, Great Convergence, in which he looks at the way in which economic conditions are converging between the developed world and the developing world. That's a broader topic and at a, a, a more of a, a geopolitical level, but uh, also very interesting. But um, lots, of, lots of things there to think about. Well, Bruce, you've espoused having big ideas and you've certainly presented a few books with big ideas there. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Leo. Great pleasure. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.